You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. A look at TA-505, familiar yet adaptable. A U.S. Joint Cybersecurity Advisory outlines the black matter threat to critical infrastructure. CISA acts industry for technical information on endpoint detection and response capabilities. Is Ariable trying to run on reputation? The Sinclair Broadcasting Ransomware Incident seems to provide a case study in rapid disclosure. Carol Terrio considers the fight for online anonymity. Joe Kerrigan shares steps to protect the C-suite. And there's a decryptor out for BlackBite. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, October 19th. 2021. TA-505 has, since last month, been showing signs of renewed activity. And this morning, security firm Proofpoint released an assessment of the financially motivated group's operations and prospects. The more recent waves of attacks have selected German-speaking targets disproportionately, with obviously German and Austrian organizations receiving considerable attention. But that shouldn't lead others to assume that they're likely to enjoy immunity from attack. The researchers say, quote, This threat actor does not limit its target set and is, in fact, an equal opportunist with the geographies and verticals it chooses to attack. End quote. There's been some continuity with TA-505's activity since 2020, notably the deployment of the flawed Grace remote access Trojan and its reliance on phishing to obtain a foothold in its victims' environments. But Proofpoint notes that the gang has also shown considerable adaptability, avoiding readily stereotyped tactics. As the researchers note, quote, The group regularly changes their TTPs and are considered trendsetters in the world of cybercrime. This, combined with TA-505's ability to be flexible, focused on what is the most lucrative and shifting its TTPs as necessary, make the actor a continued threat. With its partners in the FBI and NSA, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency yesterday released a joint cybersecurity advisory that outlined the threat posed by Black Matter, a criminal ransomware-as-a-service operation that may represent a rebranding of DarkSide. Black Matter emerged in July of this year. DarkSide appeared in Russophone criminal circles in August or September of last year and was active through May of 2021. 
It's best known for the attack on Colonial Pipeline, which disrupted fuel deliveries in much of the eastern U.S. this past May. Like Darkseid, Black Matter has hit critical infrastructure, notably at least two targets in the food and agriculture sector. CISA and its partners recommend a series of protective measures against attack and advise organizations to prepare for response and recovery. They strongly discourage victims from paying ransom. CISA's caution against paying ransom may be familiar, but it isn't idle. A survey released this morning by CISO's Connect, Aimpoint Group, and W2 Research suggests 80% of CISOs would at least consider paying ransom should they be attacked. CISA itself is looking for some assistance from industry with respect to endpoint detection and response. The agency has published a request for information in which it solicits technical feedback from industry on tools and services that would provide sophisticated endpoint detection and response capabilities for U.S.-based government organizations. It's part of a general effort on CISA's part to get improved EDR capabilities into federal civilian agencies generally. The outreach to industry complements a memo the Office of Management and Budget issued last week in which it directed agencies to cooperate by providing CISA with information on their current EDR status. While CISA is clear that the RFI is neither a solicitation nor the promise of a solicitation, the information is being sought for, as the RFI puts it, market research purposes. Nonetheless, industry might find it worthwhile to engage the agency as it works toward greater clarity with respect to endpoint detection and response capabilities. Replies are due by 2 p.m. Eastern Time on November 8th. Digital Shadows joins other security firms in commenting on the reappearance and subsequent disappearance, again, of Our Evil. They note that the gang's successive versions appear to have grown less profitable. Why, then, the reboots? Apparently, Our Evil thinks it retains some brand equity in the criminal-to-criminal markets, That's open to debate, especially given the stick the gang has received from its underworld colleagues during its recent attempts to re-establish itself, but it can be fatally easy to fall in love with your own brand. As far as the individual hoods are considered, whatever the ultimate fate of the gang, they are all too likely to find further criminal employment. As the proverb has it, bad news doesn't improve with age, and the Sinclair Broadcast Group's response to a ransomware attack seems to have been organized with that in mind. The media company discovered a possible incident Saturday, identified it as a cyberattack Sunday, and issued a public statement Monday, which the Wall Street Journal calls relatively quick disclosure. Sinclair says it worked to contain the attack as soon as it was detected. Sinclair continues to respond to and remediate the incident, There's no word yet on which gang or which strain of ransomware may be involved. And finally, Bravo Trustwave. The security firm's Spider Labs has released a free decryptor for BlackBite ransomware. They also note that while BlackBite is a dangerous and damaging strain of ransomware, at least one of the threats its operators make, that of having stolen victims' data in a double extortion move, may be largely empty. Trustwave hasn't found exfiltration capability in the BlackBite code it's analyzed.
Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. As long as there have been online message boards, there have been anonymous users, people using handles or other ways to hide their real identity. There have been movements over the years to do away with online anonymity, but it's an idea with loads of potential unintended consequences, as our UK correspondent Carol Terrio considers in this report. Some people say to me, why would you want to be anonymous online? Unless you want to go and troll someone or stalk someone or do something vaguely or completely illegal, why would you need to hide your identity? Well, let me give you a few reasons why. Maybe perhaps you find yourself newly single and you want to vet a new dating service. You may not want to put in all your details Or say you're looking for a new insurance provider for a car, a home, whatever. Many of these sites aggregate all the information you put in. You may not want to put in all your actual information and provide it to a third party without knowing what they're going to do with it. You should be able to do research online privately. Here's another example. Say it is your anniversary and you want to buy your better half something fantastic. You don't necessarily want them to see all the sites you visited as you troll around looking for the perfect thing. Basically, I see a lot of online activities almost as diary entries, and you want to vet who you give access to what information. I think that gives you agency over your privacy or your anonymity, which is a good thing. The more we use an anonymous cloak to do not-so-good things, like troll someone, bully someone, make someone feel bad publicly and effectively shame them, we chip away at our right for anonymity. 
in Deloitte's Changing Attitudes to Data Privacy, a Digital Consumer Trends report from 2020, they said of the UK consumer that they appear relaxed in general about data privacy and seem content to share online data with a growing range of companies. And one of the reasons they cite is that perhaps this declining concern about data privacy come from a lack of understanding of the mechanisms via which the data is uploaded, processed, and shared online. The whole thing may be unfathomable to most users. I mean, gosh, I've been studying this industry for 20 years, and I don't get how it all works. How does someone who specializes in a completely different industry get their head around it? It's impossible. I don't know. Maybe I am a complete dinosaur for caring about online privacy and anonymity. And I wish there were better regulations to protect it for those that don't contravene the rules of engagement. But hey, I'm open to arguments, pro or against. So let us know. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberwire. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. You know, over on uh, Hacking Humans, uh, a topic that comes up pretty regularly is BEC, Business Email Compromise. It is indeed. And uh, this article over from uh, CSO caught my eye. This is written by Rosalind Page, and it's titled, Four Steps to Protect the C-Suite from Business Email Compromise Attacks. I think those of us uh, who have an interest in uh, cybersecurity would say that certainly the C-suite uh, have some priority here, right, Joe? Right, absolutely, because <laughs> they're usually the targets for for business email compromise attacks. Yeah, so what does this article outline here? So it's talking about some of the things you can do to, to protect the C-suite from business email compromise attacks. The first thing is training them to recognize what a business email compromise attack look like, mm. looks like. Mm -hmm. The very first step in business email compromise is to compromise someone's email address, right? And that usually starts with a phishing or spear phishing email to try to get the person's credentials. Mm -hmm. Because if I can get access to the CEO's email account, his actual account, there's all kinds of havoc I can cause. Mm -hmm. So the first step is, is training them to recognize when, when a business email compromise, what it looks like, what the email looks like, the idea that you're going to have to log in again through a credential harvesting page, that should set off a red flag. But they're very subtle, and a lot of times these are spear phishing emails that are um, very well-crafted and highly effective. They have a really high rate of effect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the second thing they say is put technical controls in place. 
Yeah, makes uh, sense. Education is good, but but uh, if you don't have multi-factor authentication on CEO's email, you probably should. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's something that something that can absolutely just stop this in its tracks. Right. Next, they say emphasize the C-suite needs to be an example to the rest of the organization. Yeah, which is true. They do. They really do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, it's funny. Um, Carol Terrio recently had a story here. She brought us a story about how C-suite executives, you know, the bosses can often be trouble because right. they're, and, and understandably, they're so busy with lots of things that they don't want to slow down to do a lot of these security things, but they do so at their own peril. Right. Absolutely. Finally, they say, uh, this article says, communicate business email compromise risk to the CEO or to the rest of the C-suite in business language. Mm. You know, a lot of times you'll have a chief information officer who actually isn't from a technical background. They're from a management background. Right. Right. So to explain this, you can't go, hey, we're seeing hundreds of phishing emails coming in every day with these credential harvesting pages out there trying to get credentials. Mm-hmm. They're, they're uh, you know, somebody's going to fall victim to this at some point in time. Right. And that's going to be bad. And port we're, scans, port, web traffic. Yeah, yeah, port scans and web traffic are going. <laughs> what you need to say is, there's a risk that somebody is going to gain unauthorized access to your email account, impersonate you, and cause the loss of millions of dollars to this company mm-hmm. fraudulently. So put it in terms they understand, right. which is the terms of business risk. That's, right. that's where they live. Right? And then, <laughs> then they'll say, well, how do we, how do we mitigate that? What do we do with this risk? Because there are three things you can do with a risk. You can, you can accept it, you can mitigate it, or you can transfer it. And mm-hmm. this is actually something that's pretty easy to mitigate very well with multi-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. And you tell somebody that there's a risk to lose millions of dollars and you can mitigate it by spending $45 on a YubiKey or by using spending no money on something like uh, uh, Microsoft or Google Authenticator. Right. Right. And setting up a multi-factor authentication system that uses one-time passwords. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important point that it's, it's up to you to be the translation layer. As the, right. the person who has the technical knowledge you need to come and speak to these folks in their language and not expect them to speak yours. Yeah, you know, very early in my career, when I was first started doing software development, I think I've talked about this before. Mm. I was terrible at this. Hmm. I would start telling people how we were going to go about something or what we were going to do for them, and they would glaze over. Right, <laughs> and their eyes—you'd see it, and you'd see their faces just kind of just go slack. You yeah. know, and their eyes would glaze over. And the guy who was my boss at the time, who's still a very good friend of mine, he would say, what Joe is saying is. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. He was your Rosetta Stone. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was he was my supervisor at the time. One of the things that we talked about in uh, in my reviews was the progress I was making towards not doing that <laughs> to <laughs> communicating better mm-hmm. with non-technical people. Yeah. Uh, and I've gotten better at it over the years. Of course, you can always, you know, I used to know a guy who said the biggest room in the world is room for improvement. So there's always, <laughs> always room to get better. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I, I just think you can't underestimate these communication skills. Even as a, even as a technical you know, professional, you have all of, you have all this vast realm of knowledge for all this technical stuff, but it does you little good if you're not able to explain it in terms that other folks can understand. You're going to get the things you, you're going to get the tools you need. You're going to get what you want. You're going to have greater success if you can provide that translation for the folks who uh, you're working for. Agreed. hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure.
That's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karf, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Thank you.